You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House, and I'm really glad that you're here. In a, a couple of weeks, we'll begin a new sermon series uh, on September 10th uh, entitled Remembrance. And so this will be a, a journey through the, the book of Deuteronomy. We won't look at every verse in Deuteronomy. There's 33 chapters in it, but uh, we will be looking at portions of it. And I thought it would be helpful for the next couple of weeks to do some backstory on Moses. Uh, some of you, you know Moses, you've read Scripture. Some of you are like, I, I've heard of Moses, not so sure who he is. So I think it will help in understanding uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, some backstory on Moses. He was born in a, a Hebrew family at a time when the Hebrews, the, the people of God, were enslaved in Egypt and Pharaoh I was getting paranoid about the numbers, the proliferation of the Hebrew slaves, decided uh, to do a little bit of thinning out of the Hebrews, and so he uh, declared that all baby boys under the age of two would be killed. And so he's sending soldiers out house to house to kill uh, these babies, and Moses' mother, and Moses' uh, young child, infant, decides she's going to put him in a basket that's, that's, uh, that floats and put him in the River Nile and just pray and hope for the best. And so he's cruising down the River Nile in his little basket and uh, happens to come into the shore where the Pharaoh's daughter is, uh, is, is um, bathing and she, understanding for her the River Nile is a god, decides the god, the River Nile, has given me a child. So she takes the child in, she raises the child to young adulthood, and so Moses is basically educated as an Egyptian. So he's Walking through the town one day, he notices an Egyptian who is abusing a Hebrew slave, tries to get in between and defend the Hebrew slave, winds up killing the Egyptian in the process, and then is wanted for murder. So he runs, and he goes out into the wilderness, and through a series of of events, he ends up in the house of Jethro. Jethro is a priest, not a priest of uh, God necessarily, but... Uh, some sort of religious leader out in the wilderness of Midian. And he takes Moses in. Moses ends up marrying one of his daughters. And Moses starts a family, is there for 40 years, uh, and takes on a career as a sheep herder. And this is where the, the story picks up in Exodus 3. Moses is out herding sheep all by himself. And he, for the first time, becomes spiritually awake. He goes from not having a relationship with God to having a relationship with God. And so we get to look at this little snapshot of Moses' experience of becoming, going from being spiritually dead, spiritually asleep, to being spiritually awake. And I think we can learn from this encounter how we too can become spiritually awake and what that all entails. So again, let's look at Exodus chapter 3. There's Bibles under the chairs. There's probably a Bible on your phone. You can find a Bible, hopefully. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. And uh, this is <clears throat> second book of the Bible, Old Testament. And we start off, we just heard this read. Uh, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. 
And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What we find in this text of Moses' spiritual awakening is that he becomes very aware of who God is and who he is. And so when we, when we look at what Moses is learning about God in this moment, he's learning one, that God is powerful. God is revealing himself in a bush that's burning, but it's not burning up. Moses has never seen that before. He has always seen fires that have to have some kind of a fuel. It has to be something combustible, some kind of oil or, or wood, paper, something that is the fuel of the fire. But this fire doesn't need a fuel. This fire seems to be sustained somehow. The bush is not burning up. God's being very intentional and in revealing himself in this way, letting Moses know not only he's powerful, but he's so powerful that he can sustain a fire without fuel. In fact, he's created a universe with his own word, right? He's sustaining the very universe that Moses is residing in in that moment, and he gets to see a little glimpse of the powerfulness of God. But not only is God powerful, he's personal. He calls uh, Moses by name. He says, Moses, Moses. He doesn't just say, hey, you. Hey, you, human. That would be Pretty amazing in and of itself to just reach out to a human being, but, but he's, he calls him by name, and then he identifies himself as the God of, and then he says some names of actual human beings that have lived and been in relationship with this powerful God, and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and he's willing to identify himself in that way as the God of human beings. So not only is he powerful, but he's personal, but not only is he those things, he's also holy. Once he calls Moses' name, he then says, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. One of the ways to think about this idea of holy is that he's set apart. He's separate. He's other. He's perfect. And so when he communicates this to Moses in this very concrete kind of Uh, outward way to say, take your shoes off. You're not worthy to just leisurely bask in my presence in this moment. No, you are a sinner and you're separate from me. Take your shoes off. So he's powerful, he's personal, and he's holy. So holy that he's saying that the ground around the bush, because of God's presence there, is now become holy. Not the common thing making God common because it's come in contact with Him, but because God has come in contact with the common. The common has become holy, the very dirt. In fact, the whole mountain. Earlier in the text, it says that it's the mountain of God. God is choosing this particular geographical location to reveal Himself to Moses, and later He'll use it to reveal Himself to the people of God. It's a powerful combination. It's a unique combination. 
As we look at the gods and goddesses of the ancient world, of the, of the time that Moses lived in, and then after that, a lot of you perhaps studied uh, Greek gods and goddesses. I want to use Zeus as an example of, of, a, of an ancient god. And it's very similar to a lot of the, the gods and goddesses throughout history. So, so Zeus, and the reason Zeus is on my mind, because my wife and I just got back from Greece, so we're, we've been talking about and thinking about uh, Greek mythology and seeing all kinds of temples and all kinds of stuff. And, and so, you know, when you think about Zeus, you think, well, he is powerful, right? He's the king of the the gods in the Greek myth, but uh, he has to share his power with his siblings. And so you got Poseidon, who's over the, the sea, and Hades is over the underworld. And, and I mean, yeah, you know, he's got the, the thunderbolt, and he's the king of the gods, but he's always having to broker and fight and work to maintain as much power as he possibly can. So yes, he's powerful, but he's powerful-ish. Right? He's part of a, a pantheon. He's not the, the all-powerful uh, God. Now, he's also personal in a way. Right? He's going around abducting beautiful women and having sex with them and having semi-divine progeny and that kind of thing. So there's some sort of personal nature there, uh, but it doesn't seem to be a very good personal nature, and that leads us to the next attribute. He's definitely not holy. He's a complete reprobate. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a human being that's as, as immoral as Zeus, right? But honestly, this is a good picture of a lot of the gods and goddesses in the pantheons throughout ancient history. They're fickle. They have to be appeased. They have to be brokered with. You, you give them sacrifices and food and sometimes your own child in order to try to broker a deal where their little fickle uh, personalities can be appeased such that they would give you something good. They would give you a blessing instead of a curse. This is not the true God of the Bible. He is powerful. He is personal. He is holy. He's holy. Now, what about humans? Who are we? Uh, one of the things that we find in this text is that what we find out, at least at this time in human history, uh, human beings are not holy. That's part of what God is communicating with Moses. You're not holy. You can't just leisurely dwell in my holy presence, my set-apart presence. You're, you're sinful. So take your shoes off if you're going to come into my presence. And we must become awake to these realities if we're going to experience a spiritual revival in our own lives. If we're going to actually be, go from being spiritually asleep to spiritually awake, these understandings of who God truly is and who we truly are must happen. These, these, this awareness, it must occur. They are uh, preconditions. Uh, the, these uh, are seen throughout the scriptures. So, a thousand years after Moses, we have Isaiah in the in the temple, and he's a, a prophet of God, and he's he's seeing this vision of God, and it's not a burning bush; it's a, it's it's God enthroned, and he's a king, and and he's seeing angels who are calling back and forth to each other, and and in Isaiah six, uh, he says that the, the, the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's having a similar kind of experience, just like Moses sort of hiding when he comes into the holy presence of God. Here Isaiah saying, woe is me, woe is the people that I'm a part of. I'm unclean, I'm not holy, you are separate, other than me. Uh, in a book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life by Richard Lovelace, who was a, a longtime professor at Gordon-Conwell, he's talking about awakening, both, both personal spiritual awakening and the awakening in a revival kind of setting where uh, numbers of people are coming to know Christ. And he says this, knowledge of God and knowledge of self are preconditions of spiritual life because revival involves awakening. And he goes on to say, when men wake up to in the light of revival is their own condition and the nature of the true God. So again, a right understanding of who God really is and a right understanding of who we are. These are preconditions to becoming spiritually awake. Uh, I know this was true of my own story. I grew up in a, in a church home. We, we went to church. We were pretty good people as we compared ourselves to other people in the community. And my parents were school teachers. And, and uh, so we were just, we were good people. But, but I did not know God. And, and, and so I, I, when I was a teenager, I was like a, a junior in high school, I went to a Christian conference and uh, I heard some teaching on dating and God's standard for sexuality and I'm listening to that. And it was in that moment where I realized I do not measure up to the standard of God. He is holy and I am not. And it was hard to hear that. And you see that in Moses' story as, as he's experiencing this. Like, this is, this is not, oh, God, cuddle, you know, let's, let, let's get close. He's hiding. But it is part of that journey of becoming spiritually awake, an understanding of the true nature of God, being powerful, personal, holy, and our own nature of, of being sinners separate from who God is. But there's another part of God's nature that is revealed in this text and is very important if you're going to become spiritually awake, and that is that God is a, he's a Savior. He's a Savior. Listen again, verse 7. Um, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression of which the Egyptians oppress them. This powerful, personal, holy God saying, I'm going to rescue you. I have seen your affliction. Uh, a word that probably we would use is, you, I've seen your misery. Right? The, the Israelites are in a place of absolute hopelessness. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. Not all of that was enslavement, but a good chunk of that was enslavement. And so multiple generations of slavery and oppression had they, they had experienced, and, and they, they were in absolute 
misery. And then he says, not only have I seen the misery, I have heard your cry. The word translated cry there, it's not just a sniffle and a little tear down the side of the face. It's a cry of distress. It's an SOS. It's an, we're absolutely hopeless here. If we don't get a rescuer, we're, we're, de- we're dead. We're dead. And so he's, he's seen them. He's heard them. He says, I know you're suffering. He's not this distant God who's looking down and He's saying, I I empathize with you. I I know the pain. And so because I've seen and I've heard and I know, I'm coming down. I'm coming down. And I'm going to deliver you. That word translated deliver, it's interesting, uh, literally means I'm going to plunder the Egyptians. It's the same word later that's translated plunder at the end of that text in 22. And he's saying, I'm going to war against the pantheon of gods, is what he's saying, in in Egypt. And and I'm going to battle with them. I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to plunder the Egyptians. And I'm going to take the people of the Hebrews away from them. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. But not just save them from this oppression, this tyranny. He's going to save them too something. And this is where he makes the promise of where you're going to head. You're not just going to get away from the oppression and tyranny. You're going to go to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. He has a vision for his people and the the trajectory of that salvation uh, that they're going to be saved from misery and distress and pain and oppression and they're going to be saved to this new land, this powerful, personal, holy God willing to take all of that and focus it in on the mission of rescuing human beings. This is his true nature. But how will he do that? How will he, how will he rescue them? Uh, I don't know. If I was thinking through rescue plans, uh, I might think, well, give the Hebrews superhuman powers and they can take on the Egyptian army and then just walk out you know, in a day or so. Uh, or, or possibly maybe all the fighting men of the Egyptian army just like drop dead and overnight, and, and then we'll just walk out, right? But that's not his plan. That's not his plan. Here's his plan. Uh, verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So here's God's plan. God's plan is to take a penniless, powerless, nomadic sheep herder and send him into the most powerful nation on the planet who has the most powerful fighting force on the planet and send this penniless, powerless, nomadic sheep herder in there to deliver the people of God. That's his plan. Um, Moses has some issues with that. <laughs> He's immediately asking some questions. Who, who am I? God's answer to that is, oh, it's not really about who you are. It's about who I am, and I will be with you. I will be with you. We got this. And here's your sign, Moses. Your sign is that This mission is going to work perfectly. You're going to come back with all the people, and we're going to worship right here on this mountain. 
That's your sign. Go get them. It's an invitation from God to Moses to trust God's word, to trust him at his word. Right? That, that if he says, this is going to happen, it is going to happen. Moses, just getting started in this spiritual wakefulness, he has a few questions. One of the first questions is, okay, if I go, who do I say is sending me? He's still, he's like, I don't know exactly who you are. I, I need some indicator of your character, your nature. And so Moses asks this in verse 13, If I come to the peoples of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, and then God goes on and gives him the, all the details of the plan. So he asked him, who should I say sent me? And God gives him this very special, unique name that's treasured throughout all the days of the nation of Israel still to this day, in the name of Yahweh. And it literally does, it means I am. It's God's way of saying, I, I don't have a past, I don't have a future, I'm present, I'm present everywhere, all at the same time. I am all present, I am all powerful, I'm all Wise. This is the kind of God that you're encountering in this moment of, of spiritual wakefulness. This is why when I say, I am with you, it's enough. If I say this is going to happen, it's going to happen. And then he goes through this, this plan where he says, okay, I'm going to send you in. You're going to tell the, uh, the, the elders of, of Israel who you are and who I am. And you're going to go in and tell the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to say no. That's going to set the stage for me to do my wonders, which are the ten plagues against Egypt. And after the ten plagues, the Pharaoh's going to say, let my people go, and you're going to come to this mountain. Right? This, is, this is the plan. Now, if you know the rest of the story, Moses is still having a problem with that. He has several other questions, and they go back and forth. You can go back and read that again. But all this plan is going to be mediated through one penniless, powerless, nomadic sheep herder named Moses. One deliverer. You think, why? Why, God? Why do it that way? Well, partly because he's pointing forward to a greater deliverer. A deliverer that, that's going to rescue human beings from something much worse than the oppression of the Egyptians. The, 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 that deliverer is Jesus. And he is sent seemingly as one who is penniless, powerless, just a nomadic teacher walking around. In fact, he's talking to some of his disciples and our potential disciples, and he's saying, you know what? I have no place to lay my head. I don't even have a home, so follow me. On the outside, seemingly not, not much going on there in terms of, of power, but, but, but this plan that God executes through Moses points forward to the deliverance that's brought about through Jesus, and that deliverance is, again, from a, a, an oppressor much worse than Pharaoh ever was, and that was the oppression of sin. Sin and all of its effects that we have no power over. That human beings are, are crying out in, in, under the tyranny of, of sin and death, crying out, and, and, and God heard. He, he saw that. And he came down in Christ to rescue us from that tyranny. And, and you open up the New Testament, almost every page, you, you see this, 
this story of the rescue of, of, of human beings through what Christ did for us on the cross. One, one example is Galatians 1. The Apostle Paul writes, This grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ came not just to be a good prophet or a good example. He came to rescue human beings from the tyranny of sin. And sin is much more than just a few little mistakes, a few little ethical issues that one might have. Uh, it's, it's a condition. Uh, Lovelace, uh, who in that book, uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, calls it a complex uh, he says this, in its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated incidences or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behavior deeply rooted in our alienation from God. To become spiritually awake, you've got to come to believe that you're that desperate. That the root of your misery, the root of the misery of this world is sin. And, and at the root of that really is, again, as he says, the alienation from God, our separation from the holy God. And nothing can fix that separation unless God rescues us from that separation. And that's what he does through Christ. And so some of you here this morning, you, you're hearing that and and. You know, you, you need that. You need that rescue. And I want to tell you this morning, God sees you. He hears you. He knows what, what you've been through and, and the things that you've done and the things that you feel guilty about. And, and, and He has come down. He has come down in Christ. But the precondition for that spiritual wakefulness to occur is that you would understand fully the, the, the nature of God and the nature of who you are, a sinner separated from a holy God. But a holy God who has sent a Savior to rescue you from that misery, from that predicament. Those of you that are, you're spiritually awake, you, you walk with Jesus. Uh, know, too, that once you're in Christ, He still is seeing you. He's still hearing you. He's still knowing what you're going through. He, he is coming down. He, he hears your cries. And as your pastor, having the privilege to walk with you in some of those hard places, those dark places, and, and this is really all I can do for you most days is, is to point you to Him, that, that He hears you. And so you may be a follower of Jesus and you're miserable right now. You're feeling hopeless right now. Here, again, anew, afresh, He sees you. He hears you. Some of you, as you hear this, you, you're like, I like the part about God's powerful, God's personal, but I don't like this part about He's holy and I'm not. And so you're not ready to be spiritually awake right now. You're not. You have a God of your own making, and that God is not a true God. You will not be spiritually awake until you come to the belief, 
of the one true God, of who he truly is, powerful, personal, holy, and a savior that you need. And there's no other salvation except through this God who's given you this opportunity this morning. I was talking to somebody that's part of our church, and he was telling me a story of it. He, he, he was sharing his faith with uh, someone from a different religion. And they were having a very good conversation, very clear conversation. And he's saying, here's what your religion believes. Here's what Christianity believes. And uh, the person in our church was saying, I want to know the truth. I'm seeking truth and encouraging this person to seek the truth. And the person said, actually, I don't know if I want to know the truth. I don't want to know the truth. I like my life. I'm a pretty good person. Things are going fairly well. I, this religion thing is way, you know, it's a big part of my family. I don't think I want to know the truth. And, and it was a real moment of honesty because to, to receive this truth, it turns your life upside down. It, that's what it does for Moses. So this spiritual wakefulness thing, this is something that is going to radically change your life. But some of you, again, you know, you're like, I know I want that. I need that. I've tried to worship the gods of my own personal pantheon, and I'm done with those. I want to worship the one true God who has come down in Christ to save me from my sins. So if that's where you're at, to to, to reach out to Him in faith this morning and to receive this forgiveness that He offers, this reconciliation where you can dwell with the holy God. Not because you can kind of clean yourself up or slip your shoes off or whatever, but because Christ in His death and resurrection has made you clean. He's made you holy to be able to dwell with Him. And, and those of us that we are, we're, we're dwelling with Him. And, and uh, just like Moses, uh, as we're spiritually awakened, um, notice that Moses also has a mission that he's given. That his spiritual awakening is not just for him. It's not just his spiritual actualization that, that's for him personally, but, but he's immediately sent on a mission. And all summer we've been talking about the, the spiritual gifts and the ways in which God has uniquely gifted you, called you. And, and so as you think about being spiritually awake, uh, absolutely think about the personal relationship that you have with God in Christ, but also think about the mission that you're on. And usually that's a mission, actually always, that's a mission that's way beyond your own strength. And so, you know, you, you look at moments like when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 28, and he's telling them, make disciples of all nations. That's a pretty big order. <laughs> but then he says, but I will, I'll be with you. I will be with you even to the end of the age. So that call on our lives is Still to this day, go make disciples of all nations. It's a big order, but it's the mission of the church. And all are invited, not just a few, not just the, the staff and few leaders, but all are invited into this mission of making more and more mature disciples for the glory of God, for the good of those that are coming to know Christ. And the promise is set where he says, I will be with you in that. And what, again, what drives that is, is not some kind of obligation or uh, religious uh, tradition. Uh, it's what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's the rescue that He's made. 
the, the powerful, the personal, the holy God who became flesh and He dwelled among human beings, but not just to be an example or, or to be a prophet, but, but to be a Savior. And on the night in which He's betrayed, the night before His death, He institutes a, an ordinance to help us remember some of the basic truths about His salvation. And so He's spending an uh, Passover dinner with his disciples, and as he does that, and they think back on Moses, and they think about the rescue of God's people from Egypt. He he takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples, and he says, "Take, eat. This is my body given for you." It's a reminder that as we hold these these concrete pr- pieces of bread in our hands, that uh, the holy God uh, took on human flesh took on the common, but the the common didn't make him common. The holy made the common holy. And so, and again, he didn't just come to uh, hang out with us, although that's pretty amazing in and of itself. But then we are reminded that he took the cup, and after he had blessed the cup and gave thanks for it, he, he gave it to his disciples saying, take this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And so he took on human flesh so that that human flesh could be hung on a cross and his blood poured out so that our sins and your could be paid for and that we could be brought back into relationship with God. So if that's where you are this, this uh, afternoon, that you've, you, you've heard enough of uh, who Jesus is, who God is, who you are, and you're like, I'm ready to move toward God in faith and receive this forgiveness and this new life, then do that. Reach out to Him in faith this morning in prayer and ask Him for that forgiveness. Ask Him to, to, to enter into this relationship with you. He's eager to do that. He desires to do that. He is a Savior. He's a saving God. It's part of His nature. Others, if you're here this morning and uh, you're just beginning to investigate the Christian faith, and uh, we're really glad that you're here, but as we take the bread and the cup here in a minute in communion, we're going to ask that you remain in your seat and pray and to think about uh, the things that you're hearing. I'd encourage you to then talk to somebody about it after this service. I'll be down front. I'd I'd love to talk more about it, Uh, but perhaps there's a friend here that you know that uh, could have that conversation as well. And others of us who are followers of Christ. Um, this is a, a reminder as we stand on this holy ground and are reminded of, of how God came near in the flesh in order to save us from our sins and to bring us into relationship with Him and be on mission with Him. Uh, let's be reminded of that and, and let's let that be a, a refreshing of that, that calling, both in our calling to be His uh, sons and daughters, but also our calling to be on mission with Him in the world. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you uh, have not just revealed yourself to Moses and Isaiah, but um, you are God who is constantly revealing yourself to human beings. And you've done so so many times in this room. (laughs) So many uh, conversations and uh, as folks have said in these chairs and considered in this moment as we've We finish up the sermon and go into communion, God. And so, God, give grace for there to be awakenings all over this room and throughout the semester, Lord. And that those that are awake to you, God, that we wouldn't take that for granted, but be so grateful today for what you've paid in order for that to happen. God, thank you that you are the powerful, personal, holy 
God who saves and has seen us, heard us, and come down to rescue us. So Lord, would you please bless the bread and the cup and our time together, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.